This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast and radio show that looks at new movies in theaters or on streaming and compares them to films from days gone by, whether it's by the director, by the lead actors, or perhaps a genre or some other method that we come up with in our own arcane devising. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox, and I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this month, sci-fi fans are all aflutter because we finally have a chance to see Denis Villeneuve's Dune, the adaption of the Frank Herbert novel that has defied filmmakers in one way or another for so many decades. And we finally have a version in theaters and I believe on some platforms. And uh, we're going to talk about it right after this. Right, so we've spoken about Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 on Lens Me Your Ears in the past, and we used that to springboard off to discuss the films actually of Ridley Scott, because the producer of that picture, uh, and, you know, was was uh, Scott, he directed the original Blade Runner. Funny coincidence that Scott has another new feature, The Last Duel, also in cinemas right now, and another one coming soon, The House of Gucci, he just never stops. Um, he's relentless. He is relentless. He's like Roy Batty, you just can't keep him down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we talked about Villeneuve's Alien Invasion movie, Arrival. Uh, and now today we're talking about Dune and using that actually to discuss adaptations from fantasy and sci-fi novels. Now, I read Dune when I was a teenager, which was a long time ago. I don't really have a strong emotional connection to the source material. And actually, some of the other movies we're discussing today, I have to confess, I haven't read at all. So I may be a poor podcast co-host uh, to discuss. <laughs> I mean, we watched all these movies, but but we ha- I haven't I can't do a lot of direct comparison. We'll other be than judging the films researched. on their own merit. There you go. That's what we're going to yeah, be doing. There we'll do. Um, but I love the idea of adaptations, and I love seeing you know material adapted in different ways, like by different filmmakers. And Dune is a good example of that. There have been two prominent um, versions of Dune brought to the big screen, and one I think there's a, a limited series, a TV series, and of course the one that was the, the famously failed version of Dune that never quite was able to come together, despite a huge amount of ambition. We'll be talking about that as well. Um, But yeah, it's like, you know, obviously there are some huge blockbusters that have been adapted from very popular fantasy sci-fi novels. Uh, We could do a whole episode on Philip K. Dick adaptations, like Blade Runner. We could, you know, we could do uh, an episode on Lord of the Rings or the Harry Potter uh, books or or the Hunger Games. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Everyone knows about those. <laughs> yes, right? I think I think people have a, have, have a hint about Harry Potter and the Hunger Games at this point. Yeah, as much as I enjoyed those films, I'm not I'm not denigrating those uh, projects. But uh, there's we have other cinematic fish to fry. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. So Denis Villeneuve directed Dune. And uh, it's been long awaited. Uh, it was written by John Spatis and Eric Roth, based, of course, on the Frank Herbert book. And you know. Uh, I've seen it twice now, and uh, this was one I was really, really looking forward to. And I got to say, just on terms of a pure visceral filmmaking uh, scale, this is uh, an astonishing film. It, it is. Um, it it looks it, the scale of it is is enormous, uh, and I'm so glad to have seen it 
both times uh, at IMAX because it felt so much like it it was brought so much of the pleasure of the film was brought out in that format um, it is maybe the most immersive large scale fantasy picture so I'm talking about s- cinematography music sound design sets costumes since um, you know Mad Max Fury Road or Avatar maybe even Lord of the Rings the Fellowship of the Rings so it's it is a movie that you want to live in and spend some time in and, and it, it is more than two and a half hours long so you will spend some time with it yeah, it really brings you to the world of Frank Herbert in a way that, uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously we were seeing trailers and teasers and things along the way, but I, I don't even think those prepared us for, you know, how, uh, I was going to say global, but how sort of universal this film is in terms of its presentation uh, of, of this, these very lived in looking worlds uh, of, of, of um, Arrakis, House Atreides, uh, Harkonnen, Harkonnen, or Harkonnen, depending on which film you see. <laughs> yeah, that's we, right. Now we've got two different pronunciations for, for the bad guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I read the book, um, you know, back in junior high when I was... Yeah, that's about right for me, too. Gobbling up, uh, you know, I got into... The, into you know, Middle Earth with The Hobbit and then Lord of the Rings shortly after that. And then it was just like anything along those lines that I could find. And my dad was also a big sci-fi fan. So he had the Dune book. So it wasn't, wasn't too hard for me to, uh, to, to get into those. I think I read one and two. I don't know that I got into Dune Messiah. Uh, so maybe I need to either wait for the film or uh, just, um, you know, knuckle down and finally read the third book. But, uh, but I certainly loved the first one i think i read it more than once uh in the ensuing years and i, I certainly created my own picture of uh, of arrakis and and uh, i'm trying to remember the name caladon or um the other uh, the other planets yeah the house, the house of trades yeah. planet yeah and and uh harkonnen uh, planet and uh, you know certainly the film's don't match up with what I had in my head, but how could they? Uh, and I think that uh, what Villeneuve has had in his head all these years is, uh, is is pretty darn appealing. Yeah, for sure. And he says he's been a fan since he was th- 13 as well. So the same the same age. And Villeneuve is, I think, more or less our age. So I think uh, I think we're all sort of peers in that regard. But, uh, but yeah, uh, for those who don't know, I'll give you just a, a, a basic plot. Um, we are in a sort of galactic empire uh, where the emperor makes decisions decisions and these various houses who who sort of are have fiefdom over various planets uh, are are sort of in a sort of a cold war with one another uh, and one of the planets Arrakis which is a desert planet mostly known for its re- rich resource of spice which is the most valuable substance in the universe it's essential for space travel also some, for some people hallucinogenic um, so the new caretakers of the planet will be the house of trades a respective respected if somewhat militaristic family family, led by Duke Leto, played by Oscar Isaac, with his heir, Paul Timothy Chalamet, waiting in the wings. Now, Paul's mother, Jessica, played by Rebecca Ferguson, is part of sort of an interstellar coven of witches, and despite Paul being male, she's encouraging the development of his abilities, his supernatural powers. Now, the transfer of power and Arrakis' resource mining has is done through the emperor's functionaries this is actually a movie that we'll talk later about lynch's dune where the emperor we meet in the first scene um but uh, here we don't actually even see the emperor i presumably he's waiting for a future future film um but uh 
Yeah, the um, the Duke's weapons master, Gurney Halleck, played by Josh Brolin, he recognizes that this was going to provoke conflict with the former um, controllers of Arrakis, uh, the Harkonnen, and, or, or Harkonnen, as you say, um, the previous man, uh, the masters of this planet. And they're led by the Baron, played by Stellan Skarsgård, bringing kind of a Marlon Brando and Apocalypse <laughs> yes, Now vibe to, to it. And his nephews, played by Dave Bautista, who's kind of like their... His, the captain of the military, um, you know, and then really, but what's at the core of this is the indigenous population, the free, the Fremen who are uh, really in charge in, in Iraq and live there and ha- are, that's their planet. But of course they have had no access or no connection. This resource mining has been going on without really without their uh, benefiting from it. Um, and uh, yeah, so there, uh, Zendaya is one of the, um, of the Fremen, and uh, we meet a few more, including um, Javier Bardem as their sort of one of the group's leaders. So yeah, that gives you kind of a sense of some of the people in play here. Jason Momoa is Duncan Idaho, which is who's the House Atreides' greatest warrior and sort of a ranger. Uh, and uh, there's also Charlotte Rampling plays plays sort of the head of those interstellar witches whose names now are escaping me there's a lot the of Benny names Gesserit. oh thank you for remembering yeah <laughs> there's um there's a lot of names and, and terminology oh God, so to keep much track terminology. of uh so yeah there's a lot there to to sort of take in all at once i mean really when you think about it obviously george lucas and star wars was majorly influenced by dune and now in some ways uh you know he's passing on the baton because there are definite star wars influences though this feels much more serious there's it's a lot less playful than star wars uh ever was yeah it's not really space opera so to speak it's it's you know it's 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 more like space mythology um you know mythos reaching back to the great uh, epics of yore in a way just dressing them up with uh with uh spaceships and uh strange uh weirding modules and so on and uh you know I, i love that so much of the combat is actually still done with swords even though they're in space and have you know the technology that could provide them with so much more uh, dynamic weapons, but but I guess you know that Herbert was really interested in that sort of new world, old world collision here, and there's there's so many uh, metaphors that can be read into into these books and and, and that carry over into the movies, like the fact that the spice. Yeah, and 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 the battle for Arrakis is not that dissimilar from what was happening in the Middle East around the time that he wrote this novel, and of course, what would happen for decades following uh, uh, following the release of the books and and the movies, and is you know in a sense still going on today. So there there are certainly these real world parallels that that you can either dive deep into or just enjoy it on the surface level. But I think that's the beauty of this story is that you can get so much more out of it, especially, you know, on repeated readings and now repeated viewings. Yeah. I, I, I having, I'm glad I watched it again. Cause it, gave me some time to the thing I like the most about the film I think is the production design as I mentioned the um, Hans Zimmer score is like a plus it just brings so much the sound and the music brings so much to the creation of these the universe building uh, the the and the casting is so great all of the actors that have chosen seem really to embody their characters uh, I I like Timothy Chalamet generally uh, it's funny the, the film goes out of its way to, to remind us what how young he looks and he's supposed to be playing a teenager even though he's in his 20s now but he's quite convincing as a teenager he still looks pretty young yeah, yeah. and i mean later on of course he's supposed to take more of a leadership role but uh i'm not entirely convinced he's he's been you know he's found that grit yet but 
this is something else that's worth saying about this film is is Villeneuve chose to make this in two parts. So we're getting basically the first half of the book as I understand it, and there is another part coming. Of course, when he made it, uh, it wasn't guaranteed, but we have heard this week that, in fact, the part two has been greenlit because of the success of this film so far. So that's that's good. I'm glad we're getting another part of this film because there are a lot of questions I have about the story that... Um, that uh, I feel like the first part doesn't answer in terms of what it's really about. And that is what I thought about more when I saw it the second time. And it's about some questions I have about basically politics. Uh, you know, is this a story of a white savior, the the uh, Timothy Chalamet character coming in to, to be, I mean, all this stuff about him being the sort of Judeo-Christian messiah character, I found really hard to swallow. And it was harder the second time around, because I'm like, what is this? What is this story really about? And I do know as well, I've read a little bit that there are some folks who feel that the um, cultural appro- appropriation of, of like North African cultures in this film, particularly in in this version is uh, is really offensive. So I, you know, I, I feel like I am. I, I want that second half to clarify what this film is actually saying about uh, the relationship between um, you know people in power, a white, a lot of white people, and the uh, the indigenous group wherein they are taking their resources. Uh, I, I feel like there is a message here, but it's just not clarified in this first half. Well, we don't really get a chance to know the Fremen terribly well. Like, it basically ends with um, Paul and his mother, uh, Lady Jessica, you know, escaping the Harkonnen. Uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> this book's only been around for 50 years. Um, the, the, you know, they escape the the Harkonnen attack into the desert and then meet up with the Fremen. And we get, you know, the, the film basically ends with their meeting and, and uh, you know, his early kind of testing the waters with the, the Fremen in terms of, you know, any kind of alliance or, or what have you. And uh, so obviously that's going to play a bigger part in, the second part, I mean, obviously, there's more of that in the Lynch film because it had to be one of a piece um, in one film. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder how many times Herbert watched Lawrence of Arabia before before making or before writing his book, because, you know, there are there are notes of Lawrence of Arabia in space. Um consistently over over this film and uh, you know th- certainly the theme of colonialism i mean ultimately you know you want the fremen to to take charge of their own affairs uh and uh and it's you know i i, I think it does sort of drive home the, sort of the evils of colonialism in this you know futuristic um analogous way and uh I, yeah but incorporating the, the Middle Eastern themes. I don't, I could see how someone would take that the wrong way. I thought it was very effective in the film, the way that was used. And, and then of course carries over into Zimmer's score and it kind of makes the metaphor a little more, uh, a little more clear, but, uh, I'm kind of talking myself into a rapid hole here, but you see where I'm going. The, 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 you know, the, the real world parallels are, 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 are pretty strong and, and will obviously become even more clear, as you say, in terms of the politics and, and how they play out in the second half. Obviously, the, the absence of the emperor um, that you noted is, is uh, not a problem, but it, it is interesting how the overarching empire and its machinations are, are a little uh, dimmer here than they are in, in say, in the Lynch version. Yeah, it's, I, it is interesting to see. And I, I do get the sense that this is critical of, even in this first half, critical of colonial, as you say, machinations. Uh, but uh, but I think there's a lot more going on. And I just, I look forward to the story being finished. And um, 
And I also noted, of course, that uh, they chose to shoot a mu- much of it in uh, at least exteriors in uh, in Jordan. Uh, and they also shot, I believe, in Abu Dhabi because they needed like the sort of dune-like right. uh, desert as well as the rocky desert. And uh, Jordan, of course, Wadi Rum, where they actually shot some of uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Apparently, Villeneuve himself is a big fan of that film and wanted to to bring that that kind of vibe forward. Villeneuve certainly he he knows his his film history. So. Um, yeah, uh, it's it, I. They've shot in Wadi Rum so often recently in 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 sci-fi films. I kind of feel like like I know the place really well. Like <laughs> you've got uh, Prometheus, The Martian was shot there. Like it is it is becoming almost a little too familiar <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So it's um, I I feel like I hope I'm hopeful the film's on the right course, and I I can't deny how. Uh, immersive it was for me and and uh and uh and how much i enjoyed that part of it uh certainly yeah the fact that it does run out of steam a bit towards the end because it's obviously has to build momentum for the second half of the story uh is is a maybe it's only downside that i could come up with in in my mind anyway and but but that's just the way the story goes you know you kind of have to be left in the lurch uh part way through and that was i gotta say that was a pretty you know, big dice roll. <laughs> I hope this is good enough that they'll agree to make the second half because, uh, you know, it just would suck to be left hanging. If yeah. This, this hadn't achieved the the kind of success it has and the kind of attention it has. But, I mean, obviously, uh, an adaptation of Dune was going to get a lot of attention, but the fact that it's as successful as it is, I think, uh, is, a, is a credit to Villeneuve's uh, success. I mean, uh, you know, imagine after seeing Encendie and, and Prisoners, um, you know, it would have been hard to imagine then him pulling off something like this, but certainly film by film since then, uh, you know, just his confidence as a filmmaker and his ability to to stage scenes, even, even you know, just purely visual, even without dialogue, uh, uh, has been uh, been remarkable. Yeah, if, I think if you go back and watch like Enemy, you know, the way he shot Toronto actually sort of gives you hints to how he comes around to Dune because it is there is a tone to it that's very impressive. Uh, now, of course, watching the new Dune, I couldn't help but go back and rewatch Dune from 1984, David Lynch's Dune, which, you know, I'm also struck by the production design, Victorian steampunk in the costumes and sets and the way it's shot. It's funny, though, it was made in 84, but even in 84, a lot of that must have looked silly and out of date after Star Wars. It meant, if anything, it reminded me of like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or maybe Barbarella with the psychedelic visuals. It's it's kind of a bizarre decision that he wanted to make it look like it was a film made in the 60s, presumably to make it seem like uh, more like it was connected to the book. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it was a troubled production. Uh, I suspect that when it came time to doing some of the effects shots and that kind of thing towards the end of production, that there was probably a lot less money in the till by the time they got there. And that's why you get these weird shots of static looking spacecraft that are not terribly detailed just kind of hanging look like they just look like they're hanging on wires in front of a black cloth backdrop like there's some some truly uh sort of jaw-droppingly amateur amateurish uh, special effect shots and then i know that now with uh, the power of home computers and stuff you know people who can do this sort of thing on their laptops kind of laugh at it a bit more um and and part of that makes me wonder is it is that 
how much of that was by design. I think, you know, Lynch still likes kind of a handmade look to what he does. He likes it to look like the the work of the artist, uh, which he is. Uh, and how much of it was was down to just the fact that by the time they were doing that kind of stuff, there was virtually no money left in the budget. Uh, having said that, I do have a weird fondness for this film. I I, I enjoy the way it tells the story in this more outlandish. Um, kind of extreme uh presentation with 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 sort of the more over the top acting and uh you know a lot more emotion a lot more uh uh just you know just just strange art art design decisions and so on you know it's it's an unusual film that just feels wrong but at the same time feels kind of right in a weird way i can't put my finger on it um and i did watch the, the four hour version of it as well wow and uh or is it four or three it was the extended not it's not quite four hours but it's the extended version they created for i think cable tv and so on using uh bits of leftover footage and that kind of stuff and and adding this really ponderous narration that goes through every bit of uh, political um world building that herbert sets up in the early chapters of the film none of which is really necessary at all but you know that you get the stentorian voice just explaining the history of arrakis and the empire and the two houses and all that kind of stuff and uh, with with these kind of what are probably just production designs that they cribbed to to kind of film with you know to move the camera around to uh, like Ken Burns style and, and tell this, the early story of the houses and everything. It's quite amusing to see. I, I don't know. It's not on Blu-ray. I don't think I have it on a DVD and uh, you know, I, I think I'll stick with the, the shorter version. I don't think I got a lot of extra out of the longer version, which has Alan Smithy on it instead of David Lynch. Cause he just, wow. yeah, he, he wanted nothing to do with it. You know, once, once, once it was in theaters, he washed his hands of it completely. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have heard all of that and I understand that people think it as a failure. And of course, Lynch has gone on to great work since, but I found it as you, like you, I find it pretty entertaining. It is a mess, but it's an entertaining mess. And certainly it's interesting to compare again as a different adaptation of a book after watching the new version, how much is actually similar, how many parts of the tale are told in the earlier version and uh i just i i'm not a, i have to say i'm not a big fan of kyle mclaughlin he's so stiff and i <laughs> and i i mean he that was put to good use in in you know in blue, uh, velvet, blue velvet and twin peaks of course but he's surrounded by a lot of other watchable actors like patrick stewart and linda hunt brad Dourif, uh, richard jordan dean stockwell max von Sydow, and even sean young and that they of course sting sting is in it going way <laughs> over the top yes these are the reasons i to, will kill you <laughs> these are the reasons to watch the 84 dune it's not as i said it's not boring it's just it's just so weird yeah imagine if they'd had like a young christian bale in there or something like that i mean i I think 84 is probably a bit early for him but but uh you know somebody of that caliber perhaps um and plus you know the british accent would have fit in a lot better too i think um but uh you know the film is is certainly not perfect and and uh we'll talk about Jodorowsky uh, and his uh, his feelings about it later, I guess. But but uh, you know he was overjoyed to see it was a a failure because you know his his project kind of went south. And but even so, uh, you know it's it's still very much a David Lynch film. It's odd how much the interiors, uh, which I guess were must have been done at Cinecita in Italy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they filmed it like a, at Pinewood or in the Italian, because De, De Laurentiis produced it. So part of me thinks maybe they filmed it in Italy. But uh, 
the sets look like the interior of the the hotel from Twin Peaks. You know, there's a lot of wood and wood grain and then that kind of thing, and they have this kind of warm. Uh, cozy feeling about them that doesn't feel very outer space or very sci-fi at all. And and there's other elements of the film that kind of echo or are echoed in later uh, Lynch projects, which I which I find kind of interesting. But I, I I just I just love the cast, and you know everybody seems to be acting at a different level. It seems it's not like there's a, there's a strong continuity of acting through the film, and yet uh, there's there's this outrageousness that I love every time I return to it. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And we are talking about sci-fi epics ripped from the pages of classic science fiction novels. And we were just talking about the two cinematic versions of Dune. There was also a, a miniseries version, which I think was on the Sci-Fi Channel, I think with William Hurt mm-hmm. as uh, Duke Leto, which I've never seen. Uh, I feel like uh, maybe one of these days. And there, I should get around to it because they also did the sequels. I think yeah children of dune i think or something to that yeah i think it, at the very least they did a version of children of dune mm-hmm. which i've heard okay things about so one of these days i'll get around to, i'm a little duned out after <laughs> after watching uh the, the the two big screen versions uh but uh but there was a third version or fourth if you will uh version of dune that predates all the others and that is uh the version that got so close to production by the great uh Chilean Hungarian surrealist filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky and uh, he got the whole thing storyboarded there was a script he had concept designs he was working with some of the greatest artists in Europe uh, like H.R. Giger and uh, Mobius and Salvador Dali was even on board I think to play the emperor Um, and then and then the the money men got uh, cold feet because they were worried that Jodorowsky was just going to make something too weird for, for a mass audience, which is what they were hoping for because of the huge cost of making a film of Dune. And um, I don't know how close they were to getting cameras rolling, but they had everything in place. And then uh, the money people backed out, and the film. Uh, went south it just didn't happen and then de Laurentiis bought up the rights uh, uh for the uh, the lynch version so uh the whole project was kind of this one uh, kind of barely talked about thing it was one of those things that was just kind of a hushed about in dark corners at sci-fi conventions and that sort of thing because there, there really were no artifacts uh and of course it was all pre-internet because this is in the early 70s um so there were you know it was something that was sort of talked about but never really kind of understood or, or realized and then uh a couple of years ago, there was a documentary that basically took the whole process and uh, and made every aspect of it known to uh, to the people who wondered about it. And of course, the film is just called Jodorowsky's Dune, and it's it's a wonderful documentary. If you haven't had a chance to see it, uh, I saw it on Hoopla, which is the free service, the free streaming service that you can enjoy with uh, with a library card. So uh, check with your local library and see if they subscribe to the service. And uh, this is one of the many titles you can view on there. But uh, it was great to, to be able to revisit it. I saw it at the time it came out. And uh, it's a great, uh, you know, vision of what could have been, I guess. That, that uh, it, it certainly... Um, you know, has high praise for Herbert's work and uh, for Jodorowsky's work and the effort he put into this and, and also his kind of legacy as the king of the surreal midnight movie is films like El Topo and The Holy Mountain, which uh, made at least his uh, European producers believe that he could pull off the ultimate tale of sci-fi psychedelia 
<laughs> leaning heavily on the effects of the spice, basically, uh, and and make his version of Dune, which would be, of course, far, far different from what we got from David Lynch and Denis Villeneuve. And it would have been interesting to have like three versions that take that different uh, glances at this uh, monumental novel, but uh, it didn't happen. But at least at least we get an idea of what it would have been like, in which case it would have been very psychedelic. There, there would have been music by Pink Floyd and also the prog rock band Magma uh, for, for each one for House Atreides, one for uh, House Harkonnen uh, and, you know, just uh, insane uh, production design, thanks to Mobius's work and H.R. Giger, and and casting that would have included Orson Welles as the Baron. Uh, I think uh, David Carradine as Duke Leto. Uh, Jodorowsky was going to use his own son, who appeared in El Topo, and I think in the Holy Mountain uh, was going to play Paul Atreides. Uh, he wanted to get Charlotte Rampling to play uh, Lady Jessica, but uh, she thought it was too freaky for her, and <laughs> she, she kindly declined. Uh, so it's kind of nice that we actually get her uh, all these years later in the, in the new version. And uh, you know, he was certainly leaning heavily on, on the, the more psychedelic aspects of you know, using psychedelic drugs to travel through space and all that kind of thing. Uh, and it, it was, would have been like either a multi-part epic or like a multi-hour epic, which is ultimately what made the the producers kind of go, ooh. Uh, but, uh, but it's nice to dream of what would have been, and I think this film does a great job of at least giving us an idea of that. Yeah, there aren't too many films like this, uh, documentaries that sort of go back to look at what could have been and that it's a real pleasure just to see all the creative people who are still around who spoke to their involvement uh uh dan o'bannon who is i guess passed away but he of course was worked on dark star and alien uh he was also part of the package and i guess his his widow speaks to um to his involvement yeah um and uh yeah and of course a lot of uh, jodorowsky's uh french collaborators speak about it uh producers and uh, richard stanley the outlaw filmmaker nicholas winding refn is on hand to testify that he saw the big book that's basically collected all the photos and all the production pre-production materials that has been published in, in a single book but um it's enormous sort of coffee-tailed table book that I guess there's only one or two copies actually available. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it, there's plenty there to enjoy. Um, apparently even Mick Jagger and Udo Kier were approached to be in it as well. Yeah. I think Jagger was going to play fade, uh, the role played by sting in the Lynch version, uh, who does not appear in the Villeneuve, at least not in the first half. He could conceivably, uh, show up for, for part two. Uh, uh, which would have been interesting. I guess Jagger was a big fan of the Holy Mountain and El Topo. I mean, a lot of rock stars were. In fact, I think the the Beatles uh, were, helped get it released uh, through their film company. The soundtrack is on Apple Records, which was the Beatles' label. So you know, th- there was certainly a very kind of hip, cognoscenti uh, kind of crowd that that appreciated what Jodorowsky was doing and said yes to to taking part in this without even asking uh, more about it. So, yeah. And of course, Jodorowsky is not uh, a figure who is without controversy. Uh, certainly he said some, or done some pretty terrible things when it comes to the, to women in yeah. his, uh, in his films. Um, and that's, that may, may, you know, your, your mileage may vary in terms of being able to, to hear something which basically celebrates some some unmade work of genius from this dude but uh but yeah it is as part of the dune diet this past couple of weeks this was an interesting little detour and uh i guess and something good came out of it at least that uh 
you know, it reunited him with Michel Sedou, who's oddly enough the great uncle of actor Leah Sedou from the Bond films and and beyond. Uh, and and they actually collaborated again for the first time since they worked on trying to get Dune off the ground and made another feature after this. So, uh, which was more of a childhood reminiscence of uh, Jodorowsky's childhood in Chile. So, so that's you know at least a film did come out of it in the end. Um, now. We decided that we would look at a couple of other sort of large-scale blockbusters, uh, science fiction adaptations as part of today's Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, so the next one we went on to is John Carter from 2012, directed by Andrew Stanton, who I think is probably best known for his work with Pixar. Um, Written by Stanton, Andrews, and Michael Chabon, based on, of course, the Edgar Rice Burroughs book, A Princess of Mars. Now, it is a really... Uh, ambitious science fiction epic, uh, largely, of course, set against in a desert climate of of Mars. Uh, it's about a Civil War veteran, the titular John Carter, played by Taylor Kitsch, who becomes a hunter of gold, uh, leading him through sort of a science fiction means to the planet of Mars. Uh, but it's not the Mars that we know with carbon dioxide atmosphere and, no. and any of that. It's it's more of a desert, you know, environment with a lot of warring groups um, and uh, great chasms, fresh water and alien communities. And, uh, of course, the first thing that Carter realizes that discovering the lower gravity is he can jump great distances. And when he lands, he doesn't seem to be hurt. He's almost invulnerable in Mars, which makes him quite a, a quite a great warrior. And... Uh, yeah, and then and the locals call the planet Barsoom, and uh, and then he gets involved in the local, you know, basically battles and and uh, and conflicts. And there is a lot of plot here that I'm not even going to try to wade into because it's just there's just too much to try to keep track of. But but at least yeah, there's you know multiple power struggles going on, which uh, which you know some of which is pretty interesting. I mean, you've got really great actors here like Dominic West, um, Willem Dafoe, and uh, you've got these these uh, that are either playing basically themselves or some kind of uh, CGI alien critter. Um, and again, once again, there is a very serious indebtedness to George Lucas and Star Wars, who, of course, Star Wars probably borrowed a lot from the original Burroughs books. Um, yeah, it is a film that's famed for having been a big bomb. And I think it deserved better. There are certainly problems with it in the pacing and uh, and some of the effects. But uh, I, I like Kitchen. It I, I like um, a lot of what goes on. It's 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 long, probably a little too long. But uh, I like the framing device in the Civil War era of uh, 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 United States. That and and uh, I, I appreciated uh, a lot about it. And watching it again was actually pretty fun. Yeah, I I think uh, for whatever reason they took of Mars out of the title, which I think was one of the dumber marketing decisions made for this film. It does appear at the in, at the start of the end credits, so it was there at at some point. But um, when they when they decided to market it, they just left. And so it could have you know John Carter. Like, was that a sports figure? Is that who was John Carter? Did he run for president? I think maybe, um, but. Uh, yeah, so I think right off the bat, uh, you know, this thing was uh, kind of uh, handicapped in a way uh, right from the get-go as far as uh, the general mass audience was. And it's it's not like he's a character who's endured in uh, popular culture in the years since uh, those books first came out. Obviously, right, Edgar Rice Burroughs created Tarzan, who pretty much everybody knows thanks to constant revivals of that character. But John Carter... Uh, 
you know, aside from an attempt to make an animated version uh, that happened sometime, I think maybe in the 1940s by, uh, oddly enough, Bob Clampett, who was working, you know, on Warner Brothers cartoons, he wanted to bring John Carter to the screen in some form. Uh, and then it, the idea kind of went dormant after that. But uh, so... You know, I, I wondered what kind of audience they thought there would be for this uh, picture. I, I was certainly familiar with the character. I don't think I read any of the books. Um, even though it's a highly influential series, it would obviously influence a lot of the superheroes um, that would be created, you know, in the in the couple of decades after this book came out in 2012. Uh, sorry, 1912. Uh, and certainly a lot of fantasy fiction, uh, for better or for worse, would draw upon this for a lot of inspiration so it's, it's highly influential in terms of the stuff we enjoy now as you say like star wars obviously <laughs> borrows uh some ideas from here uh and in terms of the, the characters and the the fact that this kind of space religion um you know obviously that's also in dune but uh but there's there's that here you know the the, the strange sort of man- monastic magical order of the 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 thern who seem to be trying to manipulate all the events that are happening over the course of the film led by mark strong who's so good at playing these kinds of these kind of uh sort of uh, evil genius uh, villain types so that seems to be his his general stock and trade but uh, yeah i guess that that was the, the problem it's very well made the money is on the screen uh and it's highly entertaining but uh, the audience just kind of shrugged uh, as far as this was concerned they people just didn't seem to want to see it and i think that maybe um you know taylor kitsch was not like a guaranteed box office star and not that he's bad in it i think he's quite good in it but uh but he he just wasn't enough to draw people to the cinema and uh you know sometimes things just get a life of their own i think the bad buzz around this film you know snowballed pretty quickly which was was too bad again you know other actors uh, kieran hines samantha morton um i mean yeah it's it, brian cranston is pretty great in it even though he's not in it for very long um this is something that uh, that i if you haven't sought out i think if you're into these kinds of movies there is no reason why you shouldn't give it a try yeah at least kitch knows what kind of movie he's in he seems to be able to straddle the line between you know stoic hero who can also toss off a, a you know a one-liner or a quip with a straight face and 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 make it work uh and and i was actually surprised at, at how much i enjoyed his performance considering that you know he has to spend a lot of time in a loincloth and you know he could not have been easy playing this character but he seems to have the right attitude at least towards the tone of of this kind of film yeah um now the last film in this segment we want to talk about is starship troopers now we've mentioned starship troopers in passing uh back at our our insect movie episode this is a, a way back around the time that Ant-Man opened. Um, but we didn't talk about it in depth. It's directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Edward Neumer, Neumer and uh, and based, of course, on a book by Robert A. Heinlein. Heinlein was one of the sci-fi authors I read a lot of when I was a kid, like grade six, grade seven age, like 11 and 12. I read, I think, like a dozen of his books because they were easily available and they all seemed to appeal to me. Um, and I I remember Starship Troopers being, you know, militaristic. Mostly I remember the sort of uh, the jumpsuits, but they would land, they, the, they'd land on planets on the, in these giant suits and sort of fight their way around and jump to the next location. In enormous jumps, and uh, and that of course became more of a thing, I guess, in uh, that Tom Cruise film, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. They they really kind of g- grappled with that that sort of technology. It's not such a big deal here. This is much more a satire of militaristic fascistic society, uh, set in a kind of like almost like a teen movie style 
um, space western, uh, space <laughs> space action <laughs> yeah. movie. It is still no less bonkers. Twenty four years since its release, um, it is you know it's got the, the the space bug society, and we get to know this group of so called Buenos Aires teenagers, despite the fact they all look like white bread twenty something Beverly Hills nine zero two one zero extras, including Casper Van Dien, the whitest name in history, on a guy who looks like he's a live action Super Mario Nation puppet, <laughs> one of the squares jaws i've ever seen yeah really um along with denise richards dina meyer jake Busey, and neil patrick harris who's really enjoying himself and yeah and it's full-on sort of propaganda movie with newsreels with everyone looking like hitler youth it's um it is very funny very dark um and uh, michael ironside and even rue mcclanahan of all people show up in smaller roles along with clancy brown and dean morris as uh, as you know the guys the guys in charge in the military um some of the visual effects haven't aged as well but and it's a little camp and cheesy but some of that actually suits the film's sort of throwback aesthetic and the arachnids the aliens are still plenty gross and scary um i wish i just wish they would do more heinlein adaptations i mean this one is amazing but it's not likely to be you know redone any verhoven is his own beast but i would love to see many more yeah i feel like they've been trying to get a stranger in a strange land adaptation off the ground for years or that you hear of uh, somebody's got a script and they're 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 trying to get it greenlit and that kind of thing i feel like and i feel like someday it'll happen maybe paul thomas anderson will take it upon himself oh, i'd love to see somebody that. like that but but it's it's interesting I mean, because people talk about the book as 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 being you can take it either way you can either take it as kind of a right-wing uh militaristic screed or uh you can see people making the argument that uh, heinlein was really a libertarian and he was kind of looking at the dangers of of uh having that kind of hardcore militaristic uh kind of approach to uh, to solving uh, the world's problems uh and and i guess you could take it either way it's 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 uh it's kind of brilliant in that way and i think uh i think verhoven really just takes that to another level because obviously it's it's very action-packed i find the the scenes for the most part still pretty effective like the effects and so on phil Tippett uh uh was was in charge of the effects as he was on robocop which is another film that you know kind of straddles that line verhoeven loves to kind of push audiences buttons in in, in a big way and and uh i like that that uh you know, it veers between the CGI and the handmade feel of of what's happening, and sometimes you can't really tell where, where the line still seems fairly blurred to me in a lot of ways because it's just so fast paced and everything's happening so quickly. Uh, and and I just love the the tone, like Michael Ironside. Just you know, he plays it straight, but it's you know because it's Michael Ironside, it has that undercurrent of of irony or kind of that that semi smirking uh, kind of feel, and it just uh, works so well here. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you.
Right, and here on the third section of Lens Mirror Ears, we are continuing our chat about uh, big blockbusters and fantasy science fiction films adapted from novels. And uh, today, on this last section, we're talking about Mortal Engines. This will be the first one we'll talk about from 2018, from the Philip Reeve book, uh, written by, or adapted, I should say, by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, well-known for their work on those uh, the, the Hobbits and uh, Lord of the Rings. And yeah, this is one that had so much hype coming out. Uh, it, I remember lots of trailers and it just looking, again, such a scale. Um, the idea that the, the, this, the cities of the future will be mobile and will be predatory. I kind of, I really appreciated that, that kind of thought. It felt, you know, talk about a kind of a dreamlike kind of perception of what the future could be like and plenty of allegorical power and that was the first thing that appealed to me about the film when I find we finally watched it is uh, that astonishing production design it really is is this incredible steampunk future and London is a predatory metropolis on tank tracks devouring smaller towns for their resources in mainland Europe uh, yeah and, and they, they call it municipal Darwinism <laughs> uh, which is opposed by the anti-traction league of people who think cities should stay in one place I mean that right away is kind of a bonkers line of thought but I, I very much enjoyed it for that you know allegorical power about um, you know I guess the uh, urbanizing of our our life and an industrializing of the world um you know the drama of the story is pretty young adult but as long i think as you accept this was written for and aimed at a younger audience i think i think mortal engines is pretty enjoyable it's another blockbuster like john carter that didn't do well uh in fact was famously poorly received but uh but i, I watching it now uh, I did enjoy it. Um, again, a big sort of plot-heavy story. Thaddeus Valentine is played by Hugo Weaving. He's a London bigwig with a plan to bring new energy to the city. Then we have Tom Natsworthy, or Noseworthy, Natsworthy, played by Robert Sheehan, who works at the Museum of London, interested in history and gadgets for the museum, but he's also seeing uh, an interest around him for more dangerous technology. And when an assassin named Hester Shaw, played by Hera Hilmar, tries to kill Valentine, she and Tom are thrown off the city and they have to make their way through the wild lands of Europe and meet a collection of other characters on the way including a robot zombie named Shrike who is in <laughs> love with Hester and wants to turn her into his zombie robot bride that's awesome part of the story he's kind of a tragic figure but I enjoyed his relentlessness and his green glowing eyes yeah it's a lot to keep up with but um for the most part, I think if I was 10, I would have really enjoyed Mortal <laughs> Engines, and I was able to connect with that inner 10-year-old. Yeah, this film was savaged when it came out. Like, and uh, Not that Rotten Tomatoes is the be-all and end-all, but you know when it's like at 26%, that's, that's, that's an yeah. indicator that not well-received, not well I think, is a, is a pretty, um, pretty safe banner for this film. And I, I haven't read the book, but... Uh, I wonder, you know, how its themes might have been swallowed up by the 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 filmmaking teams kind of lean into its influences and kind of highlighting aspects of the story that seem very familiar uh, from other projects, and uh, it, which, of course, most critics could not uh, resist. Uh, you know, from the from the reviews that I read, noticing that a film that's about scavenging other cities and salvaging the spare parts. Uh, 
you know, comparing that to a film, which his major plot points seem very familiar from, from many other projects. <laughs> yes, and, indeed. And indeed. Uh, which is, you know, which is fair enough. Uh, I, that's the feeling I got even before I read any of that stuff. But, um, but I, you know, I did like the scale of the film. I thought the performances were were pretty solid. I mean, it looks great. Obviously, I think Peter Jackson was going to direct and then decided. I don't know if he went off to work on. Tintin or what it was something something distracted him or maybe it was around the time uh, he just finished doing The Hobbit and just could not do another big scale uh, project like this at that point or whatever but um, uh, I, I think that uh, you know the hand of someone like a Peter Jackson behind the camera uh, even though he's there as a producer and a screenwriter I think uh, might have been more welcome that C- Christian Rivers uh, this is his first feature <laughs> so it's like it seems like a lot to take on for your first feature he's obviously part of the the Weta films uh, or the the Wingnut film family as, as, as an art director in other capacities so he's certainly used to working on these uh, big scale productions but I, I feel like uh, as a director maybe it got away from him a little bit uh but uh, but everybody else seems to be doing their job. Certainly, certainly the cast. Hugo Weaving is terrific as Valentine, who's you know kind of, is one of those great conflicted heroes. Who's you know you know he's got a heart, but at the same time he's also kind of chained to this vision that he's got of of uh, you know continuing the greatness of uh, London on Wheels, and uh, and he's great at pulling that sort of thing off. Uh, he's he's a terrific actor, and we're always happy to see him and stuff. And I quite liked. Uh, the the sort of the juvenile leads um hester played by hera hilmar and and uh natsworthy played by robert sheehan who most people probably know these days from uh, umbrella academy uh playing a very different character here than he does on that show for sure and 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 they're very appealing so you know if you kind of focus on the characters and their dilemma and, and how they're portrayed uh, it, it's it can still be a very entertaining way to spend a couple hours yeah i'm totally with you and and i think if in the last act it suddenly seems so much like Star Wars yeah, oh and gosh. Empire Strikes Back, yeah, I mean, well. it, 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 you just got to run with it at that point. I think you're by then you're committed. So <laughs> yeah, and you got you got Anna Fang, who's basically kind of a female Han Solo, who is great in the role, but you know, basically the super pilot with the dry witted quips, and it's just like, ah, I, I enjoyed her portrayal, but at the same time. You know, there were just uh, there was just maybe one echo too many. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Now, uh, before we wrap up our lens uh, me your ears for this episode, we got a couple of animated films that we want to talk about uh, adapting uh, fantasy novels, and the first one is from the Miyazaki stable of great Japanese anime, Howl's Moving Castle, uh, and that's adapting a Diana Wynne Jones novel. Now, Miyazaki tends to do original stories. For his movies for the most part but he's adapted some of some stuff he adapted his own manga series for nausicaa valley of the wind and kiki's delivery service from uh, a book by Iko kadano um, and this story which uh, i gather is fairly loosely adapted is uh you know is an, another you know large moving <laughs> it does share some things in common with mortal engines in terms of like this enormous house moving around the countryside yeah if, if you only watch one giant moving structure r- rampaging across a countryside film this year it should probably be howl's moving castle <laughs> yeah over it, a uh, moving engine it, it should mortal, mortal engines yeah i i agree but i actually you know i will say i think i think i'll put a vote in for mortal engines too if you're feeling like live action is the way to go um but howl's moving castle is a wonderful story it's a very 
fairy tale, uh, you know, esque. Uh, a young milliner named Sophie played. At least I listened to or I watched the uh, the English translated uh, version. So Emily Mortimer in in that uh, version, living with uh, living in a European town sometime in the early 20th century. It's a little unclear when, but it's very much a steampunk reality. So in that regard, it's also got things to share with uh, Mortal Engines. Um, and she runs afoul of the Witch of the Waste uh, in the English language version voiced by Lauren Bacall, who turns her into turns um, uh, Sophie into a 90 year old when she, where she's voiced by Gene Simmons. Uh, and that sends her out into the countryside where she meets up with the wizard Howell, uh, Christian Bale, and his castle, which moves around on enormous chicken legs. Uh, she has a, he has a personal fire demon named Calcifer, voiced by Billy Crystal. And then there's a kid on board as well, though I'm not really sure, I can't really recall what Markle's reason for being there is. But anyway, jo- voiced by Josh Hutcherson. I need the sidekick. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, the plot is a a rambling affair it sometimes doesn't seem to make it seems to just sort of move from one element or one event to another it does kind of coalesce by the end but it took it took a while to get there i'm definitely getting an anti-war messaging uh you know this is a about kingdoms in the story on the verge of war and all the wizards and witches are being sort of co-opted to try to help with the cause and uh it's it's uh, if it's a little inconsistent, it is full of cool and interesting and imaginative ideas. And so for that reason, it's it is if it's not my it's I think it's a ways away from my favorite Miyazaki that I've seen, but it's still very much worth seeing. Yeah, certainly not on the same level as Princess Mononoke or or Spirited Away. But but uh, I, I enjoyed the fairy, fairy tale aspect of it. Uh, I've, I've seen seen it twice uh well, three times because I sort of was speed watching it before we started taping. Uh, I've watched it uh, with the original uh, Japanese soundtrack and also uh, with the English dub. The English dub is very well done. Uh, if you didn't know it was Christian Bale, I don't know if you would guess. He's 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 playing a, a very much a kind of a more low key take on uh, on playing Howell the magician and uh, both uh, Gene Simmons and. Um, I think uh, oh, Emily Mortimer are, are both very, uh, very charming in their portrayals. And Lauren Bacall is Lauren Bacall. I mean, that voice you can recognize as soon as she starts speaking. No problem. Uh, and I certainly like their involvement. Uh, so I, it's it's one of those things where it, I don't feel like I need to be a purist about uh, some of these uh, Miyazaki um, English uh, translations. I know in Mononoke they had Billy Bob Thornton playing a character, uh, and but giving a completely flat line reading that sounded like he just didn't want to be there. So in this case, I find that that it doesn't hurt. And I just love, I love the, the, the fable um, playfulness of, of the film, even though, as, as you point out, it does have a sort of a, a powerful pacifist uh, kind of theme. Uh, you know, there is there's a lot of humor and a lot of joy and a lot of light in the film, even even as there are menacing blobby spirits and things. I mean, there. Uh, I think a young viewer could watch it was still getting a few uh, scares out of it as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, so the last film on our list is Paprika from the Yasutaka Tsutsui novel. 
And this was my first time seeing this anime, and I can see, really see how Christopher Nolan may have have watched this and had influenced by it when he was crafting Inception. Um, it's it is set in a futuristic Japan where a team of scientists have been working on a device called a DC Mini, which gives the user access to the dreams of other people. It's dangerous technology because not only can you visit someone's dreams, but you can implant dreams into their subconscious, which confuses their waking mind. Uh, and pretty much right away, the, the device gets stolen by an assistant in the lab and who they brand a terrorist for using it as a weapon. And meanwhile, our erstwhile protagonist, uh, Dr. Atsuko Chiba, and her avatar paprika um they are on the hunt for this and of course basically flipping in and out of people's dreamscapes and dreams lives to the point where i mean i think paprika is a lot less coherent than inception for instance but (laughs) it is for i mean it feels like one long chase and for chunks of it i really didn't know what was going on but but i mean any movie that that dips into dream logic is liable to feel that way and i guess that's part of the pleasure of the thing giving yourself over to it um at one point it does cross over into sort of tentacle fantasy a touch of hentai which uh, you know if that's your thing cool but it felt to me a little gross Uh, um but uh yeah um you know, it is a it is a really interesting film overall. Yeah, that that last part was kind of unnecessary. I don't think we needed to go there, but uh, but maybe it's just a reflection on on Japanese pop culture. Because I, I, I feel like there's a, there's a thread of that running through the film as well. But there's a lot of humor in it. Uh, I this is the second time I'd seen it. Uh, I watched it on the Criterion Channel. They have a number of sort of animation for adults uh, titles on there, and this is definitely for an adult audience. And it definitely benefits from repeated viewing because it's really difficult to separate from from flashbacks, from dream moments, from whatever reality is supposed to be in this film. Uh, but uh, in terms of imagery, there's a lot of powerful stuff happening and, and lots of detail, which is why repeated viewing uh, makes it that much clearer. And and I kind of like the characters. You know, you've got the, the infantile uh, scientist who basically created the, the DC Mini and, 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 and his relationship with the other characters and his need to grow up and that kind of stuff. There, there, there's uh, I find that it's got nicely developed characters, which I don't always get from, uh, from a lot of anime features. And uh, it, it Uh, it really worked for me. You've been listening to Lends Me Your Ears and our journey through novels turned into sci-fi and fantasy films. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to reach out to us, we are available on Facebook. We have a, um, a page on Facebook and we are on Twitter under Lends Me Your Ears. Twitter also has accounts for myself as Flaw in the Iris, named after my blog and, and yours as well, Stephen. Yes, I am on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Many thanks as well to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for doing all that you do to make us sound good. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll be talking about movies again very soon. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.